and gentlemen, boys and girls, and everything in between, welcome back to another rendition of The Ryan Show FM with your host, Ryan Vernell. This is my personal study on the great American culture. And boy, it's that time of year again. We're all scrimping and saving for the holidays, whether it be Hanukkah, which is actually in the books now, Christmas, or Kwanzaa. We've got some great guests coming in tonight, including NBA legend Kermit Washington, probably best known for walloping Rudy Tomjanovich in the face, but he had a great, solid career as an NBA player, and from what I've seen so far, a really good guy. You know, everybody's got their things, but a very, very good guy. Also tonight, we have uh, one of our sponsors of the show coming in, David Diaz, the owner of Uber Zombie. You've heard me talk Uber Zombie on this platform. We have our own merchandise out at uberzombie.com right now. So if you want to get a nice Ryan Show shirt for Christmas, maybe one of our Ryan Show emojis slapped and plastered on a shirt for your loved one, well, go ahead and do so. You'll be, you know, helping out all of us big time around here. Also tonight, Lula Savage. We don't have many drill artists on this show, but her energy is rock star. And she's working with one of my dear friends, Angetic. We get into a lot of good stuff as well as her Greek ancestry. Not a lot of people that are tied directly to ancient Greek come on the show, so I'm excited about that. And lastly, Joseph Hill, our own historian. I know he hates to be called it, but our own documentarian. He knows more than most guests that come on here. And he's coming to teach us a little bit of history that goes hand in hand with zombies because we're talking a little bit of Haiti and why we kind of owe Haiti a little something. We're going to find out why. I'm not sure. I know there's a lot of turmoil over there. But you're going to learn with me tonight. This uh, Christmas presentation, this holiday-infused presentation is brought to you by our friends over at Vion. I have a lot of bottles of Vion that I'm going to be giving out this Christmas. Look at this, this sweet little balloon they sent me as well. Vion is a cognac, but what's so special about Vion is that it tastes to me just like vanilla Coke. You don't even need to add the Coke. It's just delightful, and it gets you lit up. It really sneaks up on you. And if you drink a little bit too much, Vion, you might get yourself in trouble, especially if you hop behind the wheel. And that's when our next sponsor comes in, Edward Burke Jr. and Associates, the greatest attorney in the world. You could call up Edward Burke Jr. Whether or not you're in the Hamptons, he might refer you to the right guy. But if you are in the Hamptons like me and you get yourself in a little bit of trouble, there's no better guy to call. He might even get you out of it. Dial 631-725-3131. One more time, that's 631 725 Three one three one. This guy knows his stuff. So even if it's just for some consultation, hit him, my man Eddie Burt Jr. I've used this man a couple times in life, including having him refer me to the right lawyer when I found myself in some hot water up in Buffalo. So one more time, drink the yawn. Go to Eddie Burt Jr. if you drink too much of it, and keep listening to this show because we got a great one ahead, folks. This is the Ryan Show FM, and our study on the American culture continues. DJ Honky Wonky, take it away. Hello, friends. Our study on American culture continues, and who better to bring on than our own, and I know he hates to be called it, our own historian and documentarian, Joseph Hill, is back on the Ryan Show FM. This is, I believe, two weeks in a row. How you doing, man? Welcome back. Hi. I'm not a historian. I could be called an amateur historian or a public historian, but pure historian, I'm not. But I appreciate it. What does it take to qualify as a real historian, Joseph? Um, the degree, uh, the association with a, a large uh, institution of higher learning, to have authored books, to have done a lot of research. None of that I've done. I mean, I've done my own research. I probably 
I know I'm a better history teacher than a lot of them. Know that. At least we can say um, that. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that I know for sure. I've had history but, teachers that are it's like you know, I mean, m- most of my life was spent being a journalist and, you know, I didn't have time to do, you know, if I had two lives to live, I would have stayed in college and gotten a master's and then a PhD and become like a historian. But for a lot of reasons, I love journalism. So it was all, I, I've always had, in fact, history was my minor. I've always had like two loves. And I tried to combine history as much as possible with my journalism when I could. And so that has morphed into me making films and being a documentary uh, maker of history. And led you to a very unique perspective, too, on history, you know, from that journalist lens, a little bit more objective. Yeah, yeah, except I'm going to say a bunch of stuff today that's not objective. Um, for the facts today. Well, because yeah, what we're going to talk about is, so I, I, I've got this lecture that I haven't done in a while, but the title of the lecture is What the United States Owes to Haiti. And when people would first hear that, they'd kind of go, huh, what the hell's the U.S. owe to Haiti of all places? Uh, It's a lot. (laughs) And so I'll talk about that. The other thing that sparked my interest in this was the ignorance of um, that racist in chief, the orange man, Donald J. Trump, because he made a remark about countries of color because that's Trump. He's a racist through and through, which is why a lot of people in the country love him. Um, he made a statement. He called Haiti, along with some African countries, of course, um, S countries. And you can you can guess right. four-letter four word that we won't say on the air. And it showed his, because he knows nothing about history. Like, there's a lot he doesn't know. He opens his mouth a lot, but there's a lot he doesn't know. And for him to call Haiti an S country, when you get through hearing what I've got to say and what we, everyone in the United States, owes the country of Haiti, those black people on that island in the Caribbean, then you'll We could get into why or why not Donald Trump is racist all day long. We know that a lot of people are kind of becoming more Trump supporting. That's what oh, I noticed too, Joseph. A lot yeah. of people in the minority communities are starting to really dig Trump, but it's a little bit too late because I just saw yesterday that he's been removed from the Colorado ballot. Yeah, well, so hopefully like that's going to over Supreme Court. That would be an act of God, in my opinion, because, you know, personally, and I met Trump, by the way. I interviewed him a long time ago in Buffalo. <laughs> and I can't even talk about how I think back to, like, if I knew then what I know now, how I would have reacted like talking to him and being right next to him on the street in Buffalo. When you met him back in the day before he was the president, did you get along with him? What was his energy like back then? I mean, he was obnoxious and egotistical as he's always been. Um, Yeah, he was the Donald back then. Anyway. We're going off the subject. I need to shut up. We need to talk about Haiti. That's right. But what one of the things that got me thinking about Haiti was his ignorant statement about Haiti. Because yeah, they're black. I think a lot of people are kind of ignorant about Haiti. It wasn't yeah. until the last couple of years that I really and you notice the obvious political turmoil. 
I know that the U.S. removed certain members of their was it their embassy from there a couple of years back? Because the or even recently, a few months back, Haiti's always been in flux. I was in Haiti in 1994. Shot a documentary there. Um, Haiti's always been in flux, which is a whole nother lecture, you know, because the successful black revolution in Haiti, those people have been paying a price for that ever since uh, 1804. Wow. So let's take it back. Let's learn. Let's put on our thinking caps here and dig into the country of Haiti and why it is that we owe them. I mean, I remember reading a little bit. France definitely owes them. France was really bad towards Haiti, you know, trying to essentially are. have them pay their way to they freedom. They still are. They, won't, they will, still won't pay them. The France won't even talk about it. They won't pay them the money back that they pour. But that's a whole nother subject matter. And France, which is real good to talk about how liberal they are, is one of the more racist European, and that's saying a lot. They're, you know, from what they did in Africa to what they've done to people of color all over the world. You know, the French... Because they'll point their finger at the U.S. all the time, especially if they look at the U.S. South and say, you people are racist. You don't treat people right. France is just as bad, if not worse. They definitely put their nose up at you. Oh, yeah. But when it comes to treating people of color, and France has a real problem that we could talk about forever, too, because they got a lot of Africans and North African young people unemployed in France right now. They got a problem. And they got wow. them in ghettos outside of Paris. So what is the reason that we owe Haiti some money? Let's get right to it. Well, it's not money, but let me talk about it. Well, we, we, there's stuff that we could be doing for Haiti that we aren't. And if we were really a Christian country like we claim that we were, Haiti wouldn't be in the plight that it is in now. But we have to start with the, with the Haitian Revolution because that's what led to everything else. Um, go back to the 18th, 17th centuries. Um, Haiti is a, was a French colony. It was called uh, Saint-Dominique. Um, Dominique. Um, later, the name was changed to Haiti, but that was after revolution. Uh, but it was a French colony, and the French early on realized they could make huge amounts of money um, by enslaving Africans and shipping them in mass to Haiti, like all the time, huge amounts, because uh, they were dying off because the work that they did in Haiti was hard, and it was also always malaria around. So. Wow. The slaves were dying in mass. Um, how much money was France making? France, off of Haiti, Haiti was the most profitable European colony of its time. The French were making more money off of Haiti than the British were making off the 13 colonies in America combined. And the big crop, and it's labor-intensive, the huge crop is sugar, sugar cane. Um, the little bit I know about sugar cane, it's real labor-intensive. You need a lot of people out in the fields uh, chopping down cane all day. But you also need a large amount of people 
to process that cane into sugar to be shipped. And that involves um, furnaces and ovens and heat and a lot of danger. But anyway, wow. Um, so the French are making a lot of money off of sugar, also coffee, indigo, and cotton. They were shipping African slaves, mostly from West Africa, to the point that the population, the white population, the French population of Haiti was around 40,000 people. The African population of Haiti was 500,000. Think about those numbers. 40,000 white folks, and they ran it all and treated people horribly, and 500,000 African slaves. A lot of these slaves, because Haiti, Haiti is very mountainous, and so a lot of the slaves who could run away and did went into the mountains um, when, and formed their own societies, lived off the land and actually farmed, but got away from the French as far as the military couldn't go into those jungles in the mountains because they couldn't navigate that and they would have been killed. So you had a large amount of runaway slaves. And when people run away to another place and form their own society, they are called maroons, not for the color, mm. but they're maroons. So What's going on in Haiti is, and the way the French treated their black enslaved people were just with the most cruelty, you know, from whippings to castrations, the women were constantly raped. Um, and it was a horrible existence. So you can imagine the hatred that these Africans had for the white French who control their lives. Okay, and that build up to a crescendo. To give us a little perspective here, how big is Haiti? Um, you asked me something I can't answer. Me, it's it's a, uh, it's small. I mean, I know it's split yeah, in it half, is, right? Like back then, was Haiti still split in half or Hispaniola? Yeah, the island of Hispaniola. Half of it was um, French, which was Haiti. The other half was Spanish which was uh, Santo Domingo, which is now the Dominican Republic. They're all the same island. Um, yeah, Haiti's like a moderate size. It's not huge, but, you know, it's big enough. It has cities and bays. And and like I said, I've been to Haiti, and I went to mainly Port-au-Prince, but I went to Passionville and, and some other cities uh, uh, in the mountains. Um. But anyway, there was a tremendous hatred for the French. And I'm trying to find that figure, but something like half of the enslaved people at that period of time who went to work in those fields, many of them only lived anywhere from a year to five years. Wow. The French basically were killing these people, working them to death, plus malaria. But they were bringing over like more and more Africans all the time because Basically, and they weren't, of course, they didn't feed them well. They didn't treat them well, but they worked them all day in the fields. And there was malaria that had come over with the enslaved from Africa. Wow. So there was a huge mortality rate. So you got a combination of a lot of things going on in Haiti at once. And then you have the French Revolution. And, and that happened in 1789. 
And it's interesting because back in those days, you didn't have CNN or MSNBC and you didn't have radio and you didn't have television and newspapers. But the irony is word of mouth communications still was pretty damn good. So everybody in Haiti knew about the French Revolution. When the slaves, when the black folks, especially the ones in the mountains, learned about the French Revolution, they're like, wait a minute. The French just revolted in France because they said they want their freedom. What the hell? We want our freedom also. The other thing, back to those maroons in the mountains, was those Africans developed, as they did everything, they developed their own religion. And the religion was a combination of West African religions and Catholicism. And that morphed into something called voodoo. And the voodoo priests were the most powerful black people in Haiti. Like, wow. people listened to them. And they were the ones in the mountains who were talking about revolution. So the revolution begins in 1791. Doesn't end until 1804. Um, the revolutionary leader was in a man named Toussaint Louverture. Um, it's interesting because quite a few black folks sometimes name their kids Toussaint. Seen that's, it. In, that's in honor of Toussaint Louverture, who was a former enslaved black man. So he led the revolution along with other Maroons. And they started taking over plantations and killing French en masse, men, women, and children. And they were also killing sometimes what's called mulattoes mixed-raced Africans who were African and French because quite often they were the people who sided with the plantation owners. So they were killing French and anybody aligned with French. So what else is going on in France is Napoleon Bonaparte has taken over as the emperor of France. The movie Bonaparte is out now. That's right. Well, Napoleon is out now about him. Um, a person that, and I'm embarrassed to say, I have a love-hate relationship with. Um, you don't of, put him in the same category as some of these other horrible dictators? and I said I have a love-hate. So <laughs> there's a part of him I admire, and then there's another part of him that I abhor. Um, two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. You know, Napoleon was absolutely brilliant. And almost every constitution uh, on the continent of Europe, he wrote. Wow. Um, but he was also a cruel, militaristic. Psychopath. Racist dictator. Yeah. I don't know if he was a psychopath, but he was a rough dude. But a lot of what we know about Napoleon comes from the, from the British who hated him. So, mm. you know, and, and we're English speaking people. So everything that was written about Napoleon you know, he was a monster. Yeah. Anyway, Napoleon was the head of France at the time. And so Napoleon was fighting these wars in Europe, and he was about to start another war with Great Britain. So he sent his brother-in-law, General Leclerc, and 43,000 troops, which if you knew what was going on in Europe, he really couldn't spare that many troops, but he wanted to put down that revolution. And he wanted to put the French back in power, and he also wanted to keep slavery going. Because once again, this sugar thing was like, 
when you think of rum and all the sugar and tea and all this stuff, Europeans, I mean, it was a cash crop, big money for the French, and they didn't want to lose that. So anyway, uh, Leclerc comes in with 43,000 troops, and they fight for a minute, and they end up capturing Toussaint L'Overture, and they take him back to France, where he ends up dying a few years later in a French prison. Wow. And then the man who took over for uh, for L'Overture was a man named Jean-Jacques Dessalines. And Dessalines was also a former uh, enslaved person and in many ways much more ruthless and crueler than, uh, than uh, Toussaint. Long story short, there was a lot of slaughter of, uh, of once again, whole mass slaughter of French. And finally, uh, because of the military prowess of the slaves who fought their asses off, but also because of malaria, which, you know, I mean, African-based slaves had a hard time with malaria. Malaria wiped out the French. They went to the tropics and they weren't used to that. And it was killing the French soldiers like they were dropping like flies, no pun intended. So between that and the fighting, the French had to back up off. And on January 1st, 1804, uh, Dessalines declared Haiti a free and sovereign country. And they renamed it from um, Saint-Domingue to Haiti, Mm -hmm. which from my understanding means mountainous place. So Napoleon is done. He's real pissed off. He's lost his cash crop. He needs money. And the French, along with the Spanish, but mostly the French, are in charge of what the French call Louisiana. And Louisiana consisted of basically the whole middle half of what is now the United States. So there's some negotiating going on, and Napoleon and his people get in touch with people representing Thomas Jefferson, president of the United States. And they say, if we got a deal for you for $15 million, now you got to remember, this is uh, 1804. So $15 million is probably like somebody has to calculate so many billions today. It's a lot of money. But he said, hey, for $15 million, do I have a deal for you? Where Jefferson had always wanted New Orleans. Yeah. The Americans wanted that port and they wanted control of the Mississippi River. And Jefferson was like, I'll take that deal. So when he sent James Madison over to Paris, his secretary of state, and they were negotiating, the intent was to buy New Orleans. And Napoleon said, no, man, I'll just say you the whole damn thing. Jefferson was like, what? Okay, I'll buy it. Plus the French... Napoleon was no fool. He had seen that the Americans had fought a revolution against the British and won. And he knew that the Americans were like fighting people. And he kind of didn't want to deal with that. He didn't want to deal with all the Native Americans, but he needed money to fight his wars in Europe. And once again, he had lost Haiti. So he was like, take it. 
So for $15 million, because of the French Revolution, France sold the Louisiana Territory to the United States of America, doubled America's size. And I know you're going to put the map up when we put this together, but let me read this for our audience to understand what the United States got because of the French Revolution. So the U.S., without a single shot being fired, without one person dying, doubled its territory and picked up all or parts of 15 states, including the state I live in. The whole, so from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up the middle part of the United States to the Canadian border. Got this as a direct correlation to the Black Revolution in Haiti. And by the way, that revolution in Haiti was the first slave revolution to be successful in world history. It was the largest slave revolution since Spartacus in Rome almost 2,000 years previous to that. But what the United States got because of that Haitian revolution, all a part of 15 states, and I'm going to read it off, Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Minnesota, where I live, New Mexico, and parts of Texas. For the same price as the average house in the Hamptons, $15 million. Unbelievable. Yeah. Now, and that's what led to um, when uh, Jefferson then sent um, um, Lewis and Clark, for people who know a modicum of American history, for you folks have heard of Lewis and Clark, the Lewis and Clark. The girl well, Sacagawea, she made it to the, uh, the dollar coin. Right. But here's why. That expedition happened because Jefferson had bought all this stuff. He didn't know what they bought. And he wow. sent Lewis and Clark out there. He says, dude, you guys go out here. You're going to survey the land. You're going to find out what Native Americans are out there. I want samples. And they did it. It was, it was both a political, geological, and scientific expedition because they brought back all these different animals, flora and fauna that – People had never seen in the eastern part of the United States. All of that came from the French Revolution. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, so we owe Haiti. We owe Haiti. For prompting a lot. those that, that sale of those states. That's unbelievable. I had no clue it was a direct impact from that revolution. We all know about the Louisiana Purchase, but not many people know exactly why. The trickle well, down effect. That's why Napoleon sold it. Unbelievable, Joseph. Unbelievable. And now today, with the turmoil that Haiti's in, do you think it's our responsibility or France's responsibility or a shared responsibility well, to try to help the country? Here's what happened. So after the revolution, and this is why to this day Haiti's behind the eight ball. It's always been behind the eight ball because one of the things that France decided, along with all European countries, including the United States, because everybody, like the U.S., was totally pro-French because why? We had slavery going on. They didn't want to see a slave revolution. They were like, go, France, go. 
put this revolution, and it scared the bejesus out of plantations owner, all owners all throughout the United States. Wow. And then we have stuff like the Nat Turner. You know, we have all these slave revolts in the United States because once again, word of mouth spreads. You had people coming in. You had all these French people who could flee, and a lot of them went to New Orleans and southern Louisiana, but they went to other parts of the United States, and they were like, oh, my God, these slaves came and killed us all and blah, 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 and it scared the crap out of white plantation owners who were always worried about a slave revolution here in America. It just reinforced. It was their worst nightmare. They were like, what the hell? So they tightened all of their laws, and they were looking to put down any 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 inkling of a slave revolution in this country. Wow. But slaves knew. Like I said, word of mouth spread. Slaves knew about the Haitian Revolution. And still today, we're dealing with the, uh, the trickle-down of our forefathers' inhumane decision-making. Yeah. But so, what a bargain. Wow, $15 million. That's how I take that. $15 million well, if, if for all of you look at it, that's a million dollars per state. I mean, and it wasn't all of all those states, but those portions of, oh, and a couple of Canadian provinces. Like Alberta and a couple of couple of Canadian provinces were thrown in, and then the British took that, and eventually that uh, became parts of Canada. Unbelievable, unbelievable. There's your history lesson for today, there, folks. Unbelievable. And but for more, here's what's going on. Haiti's yeah. been behind the eight ball ever since. France decided we're going to ostracize and we're going to charge them for this revolution. So they made the Haitians pay all this money to France, put France in huge debt. There is no public education to this day. If you have to educate your child in in uh, Haiti, it's private schools. You better have money. Wow. So that's the reason that most Haitians are illiterate. Even still, yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. When I was in when I was in Haiti, and, and it was both sad and beautiful at the same time. In the mornings, you would see all these school kids um, dressed in uh, their uniforms, and they 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 walk. So whatever school you went to, you wore this, you know the uniform. Like if you imagine Catholic school kids going to school, yeah. they had their uniforms on, right? So they were going out in the morning to, but but that's the parents. Very few who could afford to pay for their children's education. Once again, illiteracy runs rampant in Haiti. They always had horrible leaders, you know, from the Duvaliers on. They've had terrible dictator leaders who could care less about them, who took all the money, who educated their children in Paris and in France, but who treated the everyday person like crap. And they still, they're still suffering from that. But the United States, all the countries in Europe, none of them would help Haiti. And Haiti needed a lot of help to get started. They never helped Haiti. And then France put this tariff on Haiti and charged them all this money. And to this day, the French won't pay it back. French won't even, they, I mean, they tried to talk about this in the United Nations and the French were like, we're not even talking about it. The French wow. still won't pay those people their money back. They're probably still pissed off they sold all that land for 15 mil. I'm just saying the you know, and Haiti has suffered. Haiti has never been right since 18. They 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 basically made everybody in Haiti pay a price for that slave revolution. 
and they're still paying it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, and Haiti, it was frustrating is all the money that supposedly that's been put into Haiti. Why is it? Because the Clintons put a lot of money into Haiti and they had this organization, nonprofit. That's right. And when I was in Haiti, one of the things that hit me right away, think about a country like Haiti versus where I live in Minnesota. In order to educate children, you don't even need school buildings. Here in Minnesota, because of our climate and most of America, you need a building. You know, you need janitors, you need heat, you need electricity, blah, blah, blah. In Haiti, because of their climate, which is amazing, you could teach kids outdoors. You could just say, hey, kids, let's meet under this tree in the morning and we'll start teaching you how to read and write. Why is that not going on in Haiti? Why do we not have a concerted effort of college students and teachers who would go to Haiti in mass and teach the general public how to literacy, teach them how to read and write? Probably it's so dangerous. Like you said, maybe there's just a lot of risk attached to. Oh, it is because the powers that be don't want it to happen. Yeah. You know, when I was in Haiti, those couple of weeks were probably the most, I won't say stressful, probably the most precarious times in my life because, you know, I was constantly worried about getting kidnapped or killed. Insane. Oh, and by the way, what blew my mind in Haiti and it took me a couple of days because I don't speak French. People were referring to me as Blanc. And I'm like, you know, it finally dawned Blanc in French is white. Yeah. But Haitians were calling me Blanc. And I'm like, what the, I, I was insulted, right? Because I looked just like them, right? I was like, what the hell? But because of the way I carried myself, because I was with a white videographer and stayed in a hotel and wore decent clothes, they knew I wasn't Haitian. And Blanc also in Creole means outsider, like wow. foreigner. But I, like I said, I was insulted. I was like, why the hell y'all calling me white? What? Yeah, wrong person to call white. <laughs> what, what's Unbelievable. wrong with you guys? You know, but anyway. Unbelievable. That's your history lesson today, Mr. Hill. Thank you so much. Let's let Let's marinate. Before we go to our next guest, because things are going to get we have our, our sponsor coming in next, Mr. Hill, Uber Zombie. And it's also kind of funny because there is a lot of zombie culture down in Haiti. So it's perfect. It all just kind of, it's poetry in motion. It all flows together here. But thank you, Mr. Hill. Everybody go to Official Black Truth on Instagram to see more clips from our show that we do together here. And if you're trying to help Mr. Hill put his documentary together, go to, uh, go to that Instagram page, give it a follow and message us. And we'll speak to you direct because we're putting together something great right now about the black Civil War soldiers that fought for the Union. Mr. Hill, as we learned last week, went down to Virginia. 200,000. 200,000 troops. So we got a lot of work to do. Mr. Hill, thank you very much. We've got more guests on the way. Also later, Kermit Washington. Some call him the original Draymond Green will be here. But until then, nobody go anywhere. This is the Rancho FM. He's not the original Draymond Green. he's He's nowhere close to it. He just threw a punch. He threw Herman a wicked Washington punch. Washington was a good dad. He was a very moral good dude. And Dr- Draymond shouldn't even be in the league anymore. But that's We're going to learn about this very soon. We're going to get Kermit's perspective. Nobody go anywhere. This is the Ryan Show FM, and we shall return. Hello, friends. We are back for another edition of the Ryan Show FM. And 
I'm not sure how many people realize, but this is a show about the American culture. And whether you like it or not, drill rap is a part of the American culture. So if we are going to bring a drill artist on this show, he or she has to be straight fire. We do have Lula Sav. She's straight out of Long Island, and she's here tonight. You may have seen her online. She's got a sick new music video out. And what I like most about Lula is she incorporates her heritage into the music. And, I mean, who doesn't dig Greek culture? So we're going to get <laughs> right into it. Lula, what's happening? How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm hanging. It's kind of a late night recording session here, but you know what? We're creatures of the night. This is the entertainment business. And recently, I actually saw you on Instagram, so I followed you. I don't even like look at people's stories. I just like leave it open. And if mm -hmm. I hear something that sounds interesting, I look down at my phone and I saw you were out going hard. Were you in Miami recently? Yes. Yes. How was that trip to Miami? It was my first time. And honestly, it couldn't have been any better. Being featured on FM radio was just crazy. My first night being on in Miami. Yo, shouts to the team at 88.7 FM mm -hmm. and shouts to our man Angetic down there. But yo, Miami is a scene. It is. Every time they put out a Grand Theft Auto and they make it about the city, it only makes that city crazier. It does. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that trailer. I don't play video games, but I saw that trailer and I might just have to play a video game. Because once again, Miami, it never ends. It's like, you know, the city that never sleeps is supposed to be New York. But you go out of Miami, it's six in the morning. And the night is just getting started. And there's, it's so lit. They've got the most insane governor over there. The man has mm. completely lost his mind. So you've got <laughs> the rednecks with the alligators. You've got the Kodak black types. Yeah. I mean, it's just insane down there. So compared to New York, what's the more lit city in your opinion? I'm going to have to go with Florida because New York City, four in the morning, the clubs close. Nothing's open. Damn. You just got to be careful out there. There's a lot of creeps in Miami. Yeah, there is. And like that's that's what I find. And that goes both ways. So men and women, watch yourself down there. But for what it's worth, it's lit. So Lula, let's take it to your music here. Uh, you know, you don't really hear you hear a lot of drill music these days, especially for you know the young audience, a lot of drill rappers, whatever. But what was it that made you infuse your heritage almost into the music of being, you know, Greek? So I wanted to do something different with music. I've never really heard of a Greek female rapper before, especially in New York and especially in the hip hop industry. So I wanted to do something different. I wanted to stand out from the crowd, and especially being a rock star too. Being a rock star, a Greek rapper is just, it's just, you can't compare. Like there's nobody yeah. doing it. Yo, I love that you're calling yourself rock star. I'm I, all about rock star energy. I love that. Yeah. So what is it to you that, what makes somebody a rock star? It's a lifestyle. It's not just a style of clothing. It's really a lifestyle. It's really being a rebel, honestly, going against the norm, breaking all the rules, breaking what society tells you to be, and just being in your comfort zone, and also wearing a lot of black. <laughs> so you think that the fashion is a big part of it? Because the rock stars I remember were animals, and they were wearing sometimes no shirt at all. Yeah. I mean, you know it saying? really it is about style. I mean, it's 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 like... It's like, how do I explain it? It's like grunge, but it's like also like stepping. It's like a crazy style. It's just stepping yeah. out of a comfort zone. It's just it's just not normal. And that's what I love about it. Yeah. There's like a certain type of uh, like attitude behind it. Mm -hmm. And like the culture of rock is do whatever the hell you want. Right. Stay out all night. 
bang whoever you want. It's like mm-hmm. the same thing to be an actual rock star. I sense rock star energy from a mile away the same way I sense dork energy from a mile away. Right. Honestly, Lula, that's why I invited you on. Because I saw Danny roll with you. I was like, damn, this girl's she's got that rock star energy. Mm-hmm. And that's all about. So Mount Rushmore of rock stars. Who's on your Mount Rushmore of rock stars? Honestly, <clears throat> I don't know if you heard uh, Evanescence. I used to listen to them a lot. Yo, I'm familiar. I remember being in middle school, and that was mm-hmm. like what was lit in middle school was Evanescence. Evanescence, Marilyn Manson. Okay, uh, he's. I think he's like the king of rock. And even though he's a, he's crazy. Psychopath. He's a psychopath. Um, who else does uh, Paramore? I used to and Avril Lavigne. Okay. Avril Lavigne is the queen of rock too. Of, so, her. of those three, which female rock star would you have to say is the goat of female rock? Amy Lee. Amy Lee, wow. From Evanescence, yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's yeah. got a crazy-ass voice. Yeah, she just inspired me. I I, I fell in love with her. <laughs> yeah, she's nice. So, was there a mo- You said you were originally started performing music before rap. I should say singing before rap. So, I wasn't performing singing. I would write okay. poetry, and then I would do my poetry. I would sing my poetry. I would sing my lyrics. And then I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not a singer. Even though I have a nice voice, I don't want to do singing. I want to be aggressive. I want to be hard. So I was like, I studied rap. And I was like, let me try to put my poems into a rap. And I did. And I, I just stuck with it ever since. Wow. That's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So drill rap. Some people say it's controversial. Some people are frightened of it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people won't even go to a drill show. Mm-hmm. They say there's a lot of violence behind it. Are you making diss tracks with it? Like, what are your lyrics and content like with the drill? You got, like, all, like, the girls you hate most? Maybe yes. some country rappers? <laughs> no, no, co- no country rappers, but I, there is definitely some disses. But, again, like I said, I don't diss unless I'm dissed first or unless I'm mentioned. And I know when subs are, are mentioned or thrown at me. And that's when... Yeah. I, I, I consider myself the femme Eminem. I'm the female Eminem. Do not diss me unless you want to get destroyed with my words. So it's like, don't come for me and I won't, I won't diss you. But when I, when it comes to drill, I don't know why, but I just feel like my voice was made for drill music just because of the, well, whoever people could disagree. There is a rock energy behind drill music, just the bass, the heavy, the heavy dark bars because rock music is dark in general it's like a dark genre of music so even if you're listening to classic rock people still talk about their feelings in a dark way in rock music so i just i grew up listening to rock first and then rap i fell in love with two i combined the two together so that's why when i do drill music it's drill drill rock it's it's like rock rap drill you know so it's like it's i talk i could talk about my dark feelings and dark everything you know, it seems like it's also maybe because it's like production based. Yeah. Like you listen to a lot of boom bap and it's very lyricist oriented mm-hmm. or ly- I guess lyric oriented. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to drill, that bass needs to be there. Like you said, the music needs to be there too. Otherwise, it's not mm-hmm. even drill music at all. You can put no. any beat behind a rapper and it could still be, I guess you'd say boom bap if they're rapping. But with drill, yeah. it needs that exact, like you said, that like rock infusion almost. That heavy bass. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, what do we got coming up for 2024? It's the end of the year. And I see like noticeable growth in social media. I mean, you're starting Mm -hmm. to gain some traction here. You got Mm -hmm. a song that people are reposting. So what's the goals for 2024? The goals 2024 is just to be expand, be able to blow up. It's going to happen. 
It's just yeah. I'm doing it the right way instead of like the clout. I'm not no clout chaser. I'm not no. I'm not gonna start a fake beef with somebody unless like all my beef is real. Like I don't cap in my raps. I don't look for problems if they're not there, and I don't make something bigger than what it is unless someone wants it to be big. So, um, <laughs> so 2024 in February, the month of my birthday, because I celebrate mm-hmm. my my birthday the whole month. It's not yeah, just one day for me. Yeah, yeah, you have to. I like that you're doing that young. I didn't realize that until I got older. That wasn't a thing, I don't think, until maybe like five years ago. You got to yeah. celebrate every single day. Multiple every day, day. every Whole weekend. Season. Yeah, I first of all, the month of February is my month. I'm Aquarius. I'm the biggest Aquarius energy. That's my month, and I own that month. So um, uh, for 2024, my EP is coming out. It's called Vendetta, and it's going to have a list Femdetta, of Vendetta, you said? F-E-M? Vendetta, Vendetta. I thought you said Femdetta. <laughs> no, Vendetta. Vendetta is tough. Vendetta is a tough word. Mm-hmm. Because okay. it's just sad. Louis Sad, S-A-V, send a vendetta. That's what it stands for. So my, oh, okay. yeah, my, sure. my brand is all about justice and sending vengeance to anybody that is looking to destroy me. Why so, is that? Why, why did you base your brand around that? Because I've just seen so much disgusting things in the world and people... You know, they think that good is bad now and bad is good. So it's like I'm the type of person where I like to protect innocent things and the innocent and the good people out there. And once I see someone being a bully or being um, just evil, I I will make sure that I will uh, destroy the evil with another force of evil that is way beyond their comprehension. So <laughs> See that? So if you're being picked on out there, you know who to follow. Yeah. <laughs> on Instagram. Well, that's absolutely well, wow, that's good. You know, it's a very good point to make. A lot of people now put the bad guys on the pedestal. They yeah. think it's funny. I mean, my Instagram algorithm, Danny or Angetic could tell you it's the devil's algorithm. Mm-hmm. I look in the comments and I'm appalled. It's funny, yeah. but I'm appalled. Yeah. It is I funny. see some wild ass stuff on there. But you're absolutely right. So I mean, was there like a specific moment in your life that made you want to essentially fight justice? Yes, a lot of moments in my life. I mean, stuff that I was naive about. There was a lot of situations that I was naive about where I, I looked in the best in people and I gave p- people the benefit of the doubt. And it's like, ew, why would I even think, like, why would I try to help you when all you do is just seeking to destroy things? So it's like, all right, now I'm going to be your karma. I'm going to be the biggest karma you ever met. <laughs> Don't want to get on the bad side. So what constitutes the beef? Like, I have beef with people in real life every so often. Maybe somebody cuts me off on the road. Like, when is it enough to put a sneak this into a song? When is it enough to diss somebody on a drill song? When subliminals are made to me first. I don't go out of my way just randomly. Like, even if a girl call me out my name, I may reference it. But again, you really have to keep poking the bear. You really have to keep coming and coming and coming. And I'm the type of person where I could... I have a very bad temper. So if I'm quiet, don't trust me. <laughs> so it's like, um, I'm, I'm naturally chill. I'm naturally yeah. a good person. So I know that if I bug out on you, it's your fault. It's not my fault because mm. it, I don't go looking out of my, I don't go looking to start problems. I don't go looking for, to start beef. So if you beef with me, it's your fault. 99 out of the hundred times. So if they're not a rapper or a drill artist, can you still diss them in a song? And if so, do you expect them to make a song back? 
oh, I expect everything. I don't put nothing past no one. Even people who aren't rappers are still trying to be rappers. So I'm ready for, I, I know what to expect when it comes to dissing. I'm, I, I know the consequences. But again, like I said, if I'm dissing you, you poke the bear and you just yeah. be- better be ready for for whatever I have to say. And I'm, 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 I'm waiting for something else to come back to. So I'm ready. I'm ready for your words too. Or yeah. <laughs> so where do you rank rapper on the scale of most dangerous jobs? I think it's one of the most dangerous jobs you could do a hundred percent. It's so dangerous, especially being a female. You have all these guys around you that are pretending to really like you when it, they're just trying to hit. Or they're just oh, trying to destroy you, or they're really—you don't understand. Yeah. It's not even females that I beef with anymore. It's men because I have so many men that are so jealous of me that I've been in a relationship with, or even had a, as a friend. And just because I rejected them, you would understand how many men in this world are becoming females with their emotions and what they're willing to do to take down a female and ruin a female's reputation. How far will they go? Oh. As far to the moon, they will go. <laughs> as far as the moon. It's crazy. Yeah. It really is. A, and, and I don't want to like diss women, but it is a female trait to be spiteful and vengeful. The yeah. saying is hell hath no wrath. Like yeah. a woman scorned. And it seems like a lot of men are scorned out there. Truly. It makes I, me sick too. In my raps, I diss some females that have like, poke the bear but it's mostly men that i diss it's mostly men that i've dealt with who have said i wasn't (laughs) going to be anything who i'm trying to who i'm going to prove wrong so it's mostly men honestly that i reference in my song so any female that feels away it's your guilty conscience or you know what you did to me for me to reference you and again i'm not giving no female clout so i don't name the job and and the day a female says my name is the day her career is going to be destroyed so <laughs> love it. I absolutely love it. And that's that Greek word in you. So I actually saw a different interview. Because believe it or not, I tend to do my sometimes do my research in these things. Mm-hmm. And I saw in the interview that you declared that you were both Spartan and what would you call it? If Athenian. You're, Athenian. Okay. Mm-hmm. So is there some type of inner turmoil there? Or do your parents like want to get at each other's throat? Like is that beef still there? No, it's not there. Honestly, my family, my, my father's family roots, he lived in my father's family is from a village in Sparta. Mm. My, uh, my mother's family is, wow. has a, has a uh, family and that grew up in Athens. Yeah. So, so no, that beef is long gone. But again, you'll have the old, old, um, like 90 year olds because Greeks lived up to a hundred years old in the villages. They got clean wow. air great pollution so you'll have the 100 year old greeks from sparta looking down on our generation still judging our generation still judging different people different parts of greece that people are from being like oh they're not better than me we're still better than them so you'll have that but as far as beef goes there's really no more beef when it comes to those ancient wars and ancient history like that no that beef i think has died out how much culture still exists from back then oh still exists i mean i have a village that i visit my great grandma and she still lives in like a third world country where she washes her drawers with her hands and and hand dries hangs them up on the the wire that's like 90s as hell right there yeah okay so i gotta ask 
is are like how true is it that this and does it still exist today? The Spartans and their young boys, as they're uh, what do they call like uh, you know I don't know they were like mentoring the young boys and shit got pretty I don't know x-rated to say the least is that true or are these just some sick allegations that are out there um maybe in the ancient times that they there were some that did that but now that is non-existent like yeah. like i said everybody that lives in sparta is 100 years old and old all that's what i'm people- saying like it's hard yeah. to trust 100 year old 100 year old people as is there are no kids living in greek villages all the kids moved to the capital to the cities wow. and to, to the islands of greece there's no young people that live on top of the mountains anymore unless they're really really true old-fashioned greeks that still want to live like that do people still pray to those ancient gods i there would be a very 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 small case but no nobody in greece really is is polytheistic like that <laughs> yeah i don't really agree I, I know i sound absolutely ridiculous hey everyone's got to cut me some slack this episode is sponsored by dan cadillac god damn it wow so yeah. i gotta ask it's not often you speak to somebody that has actual roots tied to greece mm-hmm. that's what i'm most excited about i have historians on the show all the time just so i get asked them questions because i'm an absolute idiot so yeah. thank you Lou, for sticking with me here mm-hmm um, okay, so do you believe in the ancient Greek gods? I do believe that they once existed. I do. I believe in one god, mm. but I do believe that there were different entities and different types of, how do I say it, like people. I do think that there were people back in the ancient times that other people worshipped as gods, like Medusa, Athena. I do feel mm-hmm. like these were real people at one time that people thought of uh, like godlike people but i do i only believe that there's one god and i think the majority of greek people in greece believe that there's one god too yeah i think that's zeus is it zeus athena Whatever yeah it goes by now mm-hmm. wow yeah there was uh there was some good greek culture let me tell you i mean look at just everything even like the whole idea of philosophy right like so much is mythology philosophy mm-hmm. so much stuff so who's your favorite Greek of all time? The illest Greek of all time? Like real or fictional? Oh, we're talking real here. I guess you could go fictional, right? Who knows at this point? Fictional's Medusa, because I love her. She, she's me and I'm her. But um turn men to stone type shit, like like sorry, don't look at me type of thing. <laughs> um, but real Greek, what I have to say, I don't really know about it. my grandfather, probably. Ooh, okay. Yeah, he was a, grandpa. Yeah, he was a gangster. Yeah, <laughs> a Greek accent. Yo, it gets yeah. real out there. Yeah, you know it is like the craziest white people are the ones that still celebrate their roots and have heritage, right? The right. Irish, Irish, the Russians, Italians, the Italians, right. exactly. Albanians. We have Albanians. I have Albanian in my family too. Like my stepfather's Albanian. Let Ooh, me tell that's, you, that's scary. Yeah, it, Albanian roots are vicious. Right. That's where we get the vendetta from. That's where I got the idea of vendetta because the type of thing is that we have gangs in Greece and stuff like that, but they're nothing yeah. like American gangs. Like we don't have bloods and crips in Greece. We have people that are real mobsters in Greece, real yeah. Albanian mobsters in Greece. People in Greece don't beef over blocks and territories. We have something called a vendetta where if you disrespect a member of our family, this is like the Albanian uh, uh, culture too. It's something called a vendetta. A family will, will curse another family forever by wow. by getting rid of that bloodline or just like 
making sure that bad things come their way if they disrespect a member of the other family. So it's all personal beef. It's not just like petty things like, oh, you curse them <laughs> and, and, and we're going to do something. No, yeah. it's, it's really a personal, personal, deep rooted beef that we have to have with you in order to give you a, a vendetta. So it's safe to say there are no drill beefs going on in greece right now um no there is amongst rappers there is um i mean oh, people, wow. in, people in greece do drill each like they go on drills but it's yeah. like it, like i said it's not over block beef it's not over block territory it's yeah. over real like real deep-rooted trauma family trauma generational wow. curses yeah so lula i know it's getting late and you're a very busy lady i have to ask one more thing do you see the art form of drill still being as prevalent and perform just as much in 20 years from now and in the future, the same way that boom bap and other forms of hip hop are. I don't think it's going to be relevant in 20 years, but with the way I'm doing it, it will be, especially if people put their culture into it. And if people want to go international with it and talk about something other than the same thing, taking people's lines, taking people's flows. If you're as different and unique as I am and you find your own lane in this drill scene then it will last for years and years and years and i intend to make mine last for years and i don't just do drill i also do boom bad beats i also do um you know uh spanish records i actually have a song with energetic that's going to come out soon that's a spanish record so i'm i'm going international with this i'm not just limiting myself to one thing because i was at first going to just limit myself to a drill rapper but i do mostly drill music but I don't consider myself just a drill artist. I am an artist in general. Awesome. Yo, and you really are. You know, you do actually have bars. I missed Thank it all. You. So, hey, it's been good to have you on. Everybody needs to go follow her immediately on all platforms. If you could, Miss Lula, please let them know your Instagram handle. For my Instagram, I have two. The main one is Lou, L-O-U underscore underscore Sav. And the backup page is Greek X Queen. So you can follow me there. You can follow me on all major platforms called Lula Sab. That's L-O-U-L-A space Sab, S-A-B. That's Lula Sab. Follow, follow her right now. America is drill. Drill is America. And this is Radio Show <laughs> FM. And we shall return. <laughs>
Hey, what a good time that was with Kermit Washington. And it was cool to bring the original Draymond Green back. And by the original Draymond Green, I mean the guy uh, back in the day that was cracking people's skulls open on the NBA court. It's good to have my newest friend. I met, I want to say, what, uh, six months back. Got a call from my pal, Matt. Said there's this clothing company. You need to work with them. They want to do some advertising on the Ryan Show FM. But most important, this is the greatest clothing company of all time. And they want you to be a partner in the brand. And I said, hang on, I want to see these clothings. I want to see these sweaters. I want to see these shirts. And I want to take a look, a deep delve into the brand itself. And I was very impressed, mostly because I'm a fan of zombies. My man, David Diaz, the creator and owner of Uber Zombie. You hear me talk about these guys all the time on The Ryan Show. Uber Zombie, the big Uber himself, King Zombie in the house. What's happening, Dave? Hey, how's it going, Ryan? Fantastic, man. It's great to have you here, especially because Christmas and Kwanzaa are right around the corner. Hanukkah's over, but that's all right. We could order some Uber Zombie for Christmas. And people hear the ads on the show, but they want to know the origins. They see me running around in clothes with zombies all over them. So let's just start here, man. What was it that made you want to start a zombie-themed clothing company? What was your source of inspiration? Uh, basically, me and my two other cousins grew up uh, drawing Marvel characters and comic books and stuff like that. So one day we were brainstorming in his house, one of their houses, and uh, we wanted to do something in art that would relate to clothing. So we just threw out some a few ideas, and uh, someone said zombie, and uh, we all agreed that that would be a cool subject to cover and to incorporate into the streetwear fashion scene. So that's how we sort of started in the beginning. And that was in 2013, actually, 13. So it uh, it went well for a while. Then they departed, even though they put a lot of art into the brand, which I still use sometimes. And uh, I got some new guys coming in including Ryan now, who's promoting it, and uh, we're ready to take off. I love that you're using zombies because they're a timeless monster. Some monsters and mythical creatures stand the test of time, and zombies are pretty realistic. I've seen a few indications yeah. that we will be invaded by zombies. Do you think there's a chance, Dave, that zombies are really going to appear in real life at some point? Yeah, basically, yeah. Uh, Zombies were created by a uh, Haitian folk folklore. It was a pre pretty much a dead body reincarnated through voodoo and magical uh, practices. So th that's the origin of zombies. But of course, they've been on in countless movies throughout the years, and uh, they've been part of the uh, pop culture of America. So. Uh, we're in a good place to incorporate them into a, a, a brand. I know that you created it in 2013. That was pretty much the height of The Walking Dead. Everybody was watching that show, The Walking Dead, around that time. Right. As an expert in things that are zombie, an owner of Uber Zombie, I must know, what is your favorite zombie movie or TV show? Actually, yeah, like you said, The, the Walking Dead was... Well, inspiration, definitely. It was something, uh, actually, my cousin was really, really into it, and, and he got me to watch. So 
But uh, we took it from there as far as the art. We, we started out very niche, like very gory zombie stuff. But now I've sort of morphed into more of a broader audience. I'm throwing, of course, zombies still in there, you know, with the faces and maybe some poses, uh, backgrounds, creepy stuff. But it's also for, for most of the audience also. Men, women, snowboarders, skateboarders, so pretty much all around right now. But we kept the name. I thought it was a cool name, so. It is a pretty badass name. I mean, even though it says zombie in it, I don't think anybody expects it, including myself when I first heard it. I don't know it would literally be all zombie-themed uh, zombie clothing. I had no clue. And, and Matt didn't even tell me, by the way. He's just like, yeah, got this yeah. great clothing company. Got this great clothing company. Uh, it's definitely great for the holiday season. And we've got brand new Ryan Show merch, some of which has uh, zombie stuff on it. A lot of it doesn't. But I like the whole idea of zombies, Dave, because although it is Haitian, like you said, in its origins, the idea of zombies, because I think people were getting bit by some type of a fish or something. And they were essentially their brains were rotting out from the insides of their heads and they were walking around like zombies or they were on drugs. I forgot the exact reason why. But Americans took it to the next level through yeah. film. I feel like we kind of really took over the oh, lore yeah, and yeah. culture of zombies. It's as American as apple pie at this point. Yeah, pretty much it's mixed into the culture ever since the probably early 50s, right? Even before that, who knows? But uh, yeah, yeah. So it's definitely weaved into the culture. So it, it yeah, yeah. So we could sort of go a uh, hundred different ways with it. We could do real creepy stuff, re real gory stuff, but we could also do more of a fashionable type thing, not so bold. But right now we're going kind of bold yeah. with the lettering, just to get the name out there. So We got to start appealing to all audiences. That's the but everybody should go to Uber Zombie International on Instagram. Go to uberzombie.com and check out what we're talking about right here. We've got great specials on all these new Ryan Show merchandise that we've come up with, Dave and I. We've got some emoji shouts to Fetus from Pixel Parade that are going to be on clothing. So go check it out. Go to our Instagram page, The Ryan Show, and check the collab post. We got one coming with Uber Zombie International. And Dave, I want to thank you, man, for coming up. We're going to be making some uh, some moves this year, man. This is the year of the zombie. No problem, man. Anytime. And uh, I look forward to new exciting things coming out. So just to let everyone know, we're, we're always evolving. And uh, we have the skateboarders, the fashion people in mind. So we'll, we'll be coming out with very exciting stuff very soon. Big shouts to my man, Dave Diaz. We'll be back soon, folks. This is The Ryan Show FM. Our study on American culture continues. Let's go. Now I'm a kick up dust as I begin to bust on the wet whack. The suckers you can't trust when I kick up. I lick up your face to smack up when I rack up. So all your motherfuckers just pack up. Or get slapped with a swiftness. If you think you're swift with the gift, Merry Christmas. 
nest up that in your stocking I'm knocking them out the boxing, knocking them out their socks Cause Robin is rocking, breaking them down to the slab Taking them down on it Now what you wanna do, you wanna battle, uh See you a quick without a motherfucker paddle, rattle That brain, I'm not the same old plane, Jane Roll on you like a boulder, you're nothing more than a grain or a pebble Take it from the real rap rebel Not push with Bill, but I can take it to that other level You think you got pulled and pull it, uh I got the trigger, so I figure you'll bite the bullet Then bite the dust, or what the fuck Do what I must, and what I must is bust a bubble Or do some trouble for you, so skip to my loser lady And rage is coming through There's no one, I'll make some cool off like a polar cat Lynching as a hit, misses the rollers back Pushing packs to make a profit Dinky dope got on a topic So stop and give me my pop kit I'm living large like a fat So get back, I'm hard to broke off So the fat kid, this young black kid A mercenary, merciless Murder and make us a m- So who's first to this? They say I'm bad, so you'll find none worse than this Chewing my b- up like a Hershey's kiss Put to sleep Loving the lyrics I leave in the minds of each But when flex Too complex Flex your mental peace So feel the rap I rip it half You're quick to talk I whoop your I'll fierce Girl watch me blast Cause I'm the last You wanna fix So up your cash I'll fierce I make them stagger I'm scared with Jimmy Swagger I'm a good dragger Show me your girl And watch me tag her Pulling steel like a stunt Shown like an ID car Needs the front self Hit a torment of a track on And I'm strapped with a semi-tone Millie Mac Yo, I break some more, I break some more Cheap, deadly as Jason On Friday the 13th In the days, in they used to scrap, but now in '92, in they pull they strap, cause um, police them come wicked and them shoot. So, retaliate and start to move, execute, boom, stomping black soldier, here to teach and mold ya. The innovator, dominator, narrator, all be to the mother X, flex, wicked, stylily, bump and be found into green wire. Maniac with a jack. See nowadays, just like that. I pull my trigger back, the bullets go. Boom, boom, boom. Now I'm on death row. It's going wild. Every night they shoot, it's like they cruise. Maybe you should get a cap raw vest for your chest anytime stepping through my hood. But better do you no good. One stuff to your face, no hate, you're getting smoked like wood. Nasty nobody punks, they splat on the concrete. Here comes the white sheet. Mr. Coroner, cut with some yellow tape, but the murderers escape. Audi like five G's. Lyrical gang bang, but it's just a cheap thing. Hello, friends. We are back again. This is another rendition of the Ryan Show FM simulcast to Fox Sports Rochester as a part of what's going on. Simulcast to Fadeaway World. The great Nick Mack is with me. And Mac, we are sitting with a damn legend today. Yes, we are. Because this is that good old school basketball. I think the NBA has turned soft, has turned flaccid. I'm just mm-hmm. not having it. I mean, I still watch it, 
regularly. I still cover it regularly. But my man brings the heat. One of the great tough guys back in the old NBA era. And, uh, man, Kermit Washington is here. Everybody put your hands together. The great Kermit Washington is here. Former Laker, former Trailblazer, former NBA All-Star, two-time NBA defensive player. And, uh, man, how you doing? First things first, it's good to see you, good to meet you. How's everything going these days, Kermit? Good, good. I can't complain. You know, when, when you get to my age, you're just glad to wake up in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I feel no, those I, same sentiments. I'm 72 now, so, you know. Oh, that's stop it. 72 is the new 30. Yeah, well, that's nice. I work out every day. I, you know what I told a person at the gym? I've only probably missed two months of working out in 53 years. So I, I don't, I, that's just part of life. And um, funny stories with the Lakers, in those days, they didn't want you to lift weights or anything. And you would be fined by $2,000 if they found out that you were lifting weights. But I went on and lifted weights anyway because <laughs> I, none of the people or none of the players were going to be in there seeing me lift weights at Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. No. I knew Why that. did they discourage lifting weights? Because they thought that it would affect your shooting. But I could never shoot anyway, so it didn't make much difference. <laughs> it was always layups or hook shots or something like that or a dunk. I mean, I wasn't – not in college, I was a shooter. Not a shooter. I was more – I shot outside more. But when I got into pros, uh, my, my job was rebound, defense, block some shots, and run on a fast break or get some offensive rebounds. That's it. Wow. Well, um, I don't know if you saw the news this morning, but uh, Kareem, Kareem actually took a fall down some stairs and suffered a broken hip. So we are uh, sending out our well wishes to him today as well. Yeah. Yeah. My teammate for three years. Um, I tell you, he was a professional of all professionals. Always on time. Never complain. Very coachable and um, a great teammate. And um, I was I was honored to be his teammate. And it's funny thing is on my wall in college for four years was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And all of a sudden I know a couple of years later, I'm his teammate. So that, that's something, you know, and he's a great player. Um, one of the top three, I think, big men in the history of the game, three or four. You know, in our era, he was the best. But it's hard to compare Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain. The game was different. So... And I don't want to ever be disrespectful to them. But for me, I think Kareem was the best, you know, the best for like 30 years or 40 years that nobody really could match what he could do. And what kind of an impact do you think that he had on your game playing with him for those three years? Yeah. As like a mentor. Well, he wasn't a mentor. He was, it was, you know, he was my teammate. And uh, when I say I, his game and my game were absolutely different, nothing. All I did was rebound, protect his weak side. And a lot of times check the center on the other team that would get him in foul trouble. Like I would check Moses Malone, um, guys like that, that were aggressive and they didn't want to get Kareem in foul trouble. So they put me on him like Dan Issel. I mean, some of the mm. were more mobile and, I was expendable. Kareem was not expendable. <laughs> I was a sacrificial lamb. I didn't care. I mean, I, I, I enjoyed being whatever they wanted me to be. You right. got to see that hook shot 
that you know up close and personal. Why don't you see that in the NBA anymore? I always wondered that. Why don't you think players these days are, are finding that next evolution of that? That unstoppable well, you, first shot. First of all, you gotta have big enough hands to palm the ball. And right. somebody asked me that about a couple of weeks ago. Well, with the Lakers, maybe we had two that could palm the ball, Connie Hawkins and Kareem, and that's it. Um, On the Celtics team, we had nobody that could palm a ball. On the Clipper team, nobody I can remember who could palm a ball. Um, Portland, I can't remember. Oh, Billy Ray Bates. Billy Ray Bates, a guy that came off the bench, uh, could palm the ball. So, What about Mo Lucas? No? To control in your hand. So, um, and centers nowadays don't want to play the post. They want to play facing the bucket. It's a different game. Right. Makes sense. So, overall, your experience playing, uh, you know, I want to go here. Just thinking about how the NBA has changed so much. Recently, we saw what went down with Draymond Green. Throwing fists the way he did. And not even really throwing fists. A few different outbursts on the court. I mean, Obviously, back then, that seemed like a normal thing. It was just a way more physical game. But looking back, like, what advice would you give to a guy like Draymond Green? Draymond Green would not do that 20, 30 years ago. He would, <laughs> let's, let's, get, let's be really honest. He's a good yeah. player. And as a good player, on a, was a very good team. I think Golden State's time is up now because of the age. But he wouldn't dare. I mean, you had so many tough guys back then. I mean, you, you look at Seattle, you had Lonnie Shelton and, and Paul Silas, you had truck Robinson, you had Clifford, Clifford Ray, you had just all the way down the list. Every team had a tough guy. I mean, and if you got in a fight back then, it was a $50 fine. So he, he would have no chance of slapping somebody. Oh my goodness. No, he wouldn't have made it. He had been in a hospital every other week. But he would have been smart enough to realize the pecking order is different. Guys now are making millions of dollars. So they don't want to get suspended and lose oh two, three hundred thousand dollars. But back then you maybe lose fifty dollars until I got in that situation and then fines went up. But it they they're not it's not that they aren't tough. They just say, hey, they're making so much money. They're they're not thinking about being as aggressive as we were back in the back. And the game now is fast. Back then, the game was slow, more physical. But now the game is up and down the court, three-point shots. I mean, so they're not so close together being as physical. Back then, you could hand check. You could not you could elbow, not elbow, but you could you could hold people with your elbow. You can't do that anymore. You can't hand check. Because that's a foul. But that's the way they used to control people. I mean, if you were a quick guard, they put if Jerry West or Oscar Robinson, those guys put that hand on you, you weren't moving so fast. Because they were pushing and they were holding, they were pinching. It's a different game. It's a different game. And you know what? The players are better athletes than we were. But as I was telling a guy the other day, we only had 12 guys on the roster and there was only 14 teams. So you had more talent on teams. Now you could go seven or eight or nine, and that guy could play. Nowadays, you can't go that deep in the um, roster and really have a very productive player coming off the bench because now they have 15 players, I think. And um, 
and you have 30 teams. So you don't have, you know, like I'll give you a good example. We used to play the Denver Nuggets. They had Dan Issel. They had David Thompson. Or they had Kiki Vanderway. They had Alex English. They had, Ooh. you know, four or five guys that are 20-point scores. And we're not even talking about some of the um, other players that weren't bad. If you looked at, like, Seattle, I mean, Seattle Sonics, you had Sigma, Freddie Brown, Gus Williams. Dennis uh, Johnson. Yeah, you had all these other guys. So you have Lonnie Shelton, who was very, very tough. But you had all of these guys that could play. Nowadays, you look at, look at the Lakers. Let's say this. How many guys on the Lakers are consistently a 20-point scorer? Two. Uh, you got me. Two. Consistent. Now, you got guys that can break out, but you don't have that consistent, like, or like the Lakers in the past, Kareem, Jamal, um, Norm Nixon, Magic Johnson, McAdoo coming off the bench. I mean, you had talent in Boston. You know, you had a Hall of Fame lineup, Bird, McHale, um, Parrish, Cornbread Maxwell, and you had Ainge, and you had DJ. So you had four Hall of Famers right there. So, and look at, you know, it's just, it's, they had more talent back then. And the game was slower. Now, I enjoy watching the game, but I don't like some of the situations where some of the teams are just so bad. You know, and it's, it's, like, it's like football now. You know, so many of the quarterbacks have gotten hurt. You know, even, and I love football better than basketball, but I turned the game off the other day. 63 to 3 or something. I don't know when they played the um, Chargers and, and, and the Raiders played. You know, I, that, that's not something I want to watch. And both teams had backup quarterbacks. See, and what are they going to do? And somebody asked me that today with the quarterback situation. Well, I think the quarterbacks just got to get tougher. <laughs> just, that's all I know. Definitely. You know, you, you talk about the talent around the league back then. You played with an immense amount of talent. I mean, look at this list of players that you shared the court with as teammates. Connie Hawkins, Kareem, Happy Hairston, Dave Cowens, Hondo, Zelmo Beatty. The the list goes on and on. I mean, what did you I, learn from what I, what's that? Hall of Fame played with, yes. Yeah. It, it's because too, I played on teams that had those kind of had that kind of talent. You know, I, I thought about that. How many other people played with 12 Hall of Famers in their career? So you better be on the Lakers or the Celtics. You better <laughs> teams or being there. It was a different game. I'll give you a good example. Jerry West was no music in the locker room. You know, there was no music. He told you when we went out on the court um, to stretch or is now your time to shoot. And if you're a big man, you better not try to shoot any three-pointers. Go in there. He would tell you, go in there where you're supposed to be. Same thing with Havlicek or Dave Bing, some of the older guys. It was a different kind of leadership. Like, like Michael Jordan is, was a leader. And, and Kobe was a leader. Now, LeBron, I think, is one of the top players of all time. But he's not a killer like Kobe or, 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 or Michael Jordan. They were killers. They came to destroy you. They're not going to hug you and, and hug you before a game and smile and play around. They came to destroy you. And you knew that. You know, like almost, Barkley wasn't your buddy. He tried to hurt you. because Do you he was, think that's detrimental, though, when you hear those types of attitudes that guys had back then? Jordan punching his teammate in the face. I mean, 
especially nowadays, how softer people are in general. I'm not sure if that really would work as a leader in today's locker room. Maybe that's why LeBron has to kind of scale back a bit. Oh, if you played with Michael, it would work <laughs> as a player. I'm just saying. Yeah. So people respect talent. And and he it was alpha male. And Kobe was an alpha male. They they demanded um, respect because of their effort, their hard work, and their determination. They didn't take games off. I'll give you a good example. Nowadays, with these guys taking a rest day, do you think that Kobe or Bird or Magic or any of these guys would take a rest day? No such thing. They wouldn't think about it because they know that people have paid for tickets for their kids maybe on the East Coast for one game to see them play. And Mm. one time I, I was working for the NBA Union I was at a game and Kobe was hurt already. And before the game, I said, are you going to play? He says, yeah. He says, because people have brought these kids to see me play. And I'm only here one time. If I could get on the court, I'm going to get on the court. That's the kind of mentality that Michael had. And listen, Michael Jordan's last year, he didn't miss a game. He played 82 games. See, and you know he's hurt. You know he's sore. You know his knees hurt. But that was the mentality of those guys back there. I mean, they knew that the fans came to see them. It's like Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. We don't want to see the Jackson 5 without Michael. I'm not, <laughs> I don't, we want to see everything. And so I think those players back then understood that. You know, Kareem never missed games unless he was really hurt. Um, Jerry West would never miss games. Havlicek would never miss games. Dave Bing, all these guys that are Hall of Famers, they were professionals, and we weren't making that kind of money. See, you know, that, and that's a big difference. You know, when you know you got to play, you know you got to work. Or, you know, i give you a good example. I came in the league, and I was a first-round draft pick, fifth player picked, and my contract was $100,000. Okay? Wow. But wow. the government was, was 50%. You, you, you might be live okay, but you better not, you know, you better last more than one year, two years or three years, because you're going to be working some kind of job. So the thing is, they, they came to play. They didn't play around. And they had a lot of serious guys, very serious guys. And um, you had to be in the pecking order. We all knew the pecking order, you know, just like with a Barkley. I'll give you a good example. I didn't play against Barkley. But if you tried to be better than Barkley, a confrontation was going to take place. That was known. Because if you weren't better than him, he's not going to let you just do that. Or Michael, or Kobe, or any of these great players. Everybody knows the pecking order. They know it. Is there a player out there now that might have that same mentality? Oh, let me think. That's that good. Okay, let me think. You know, you should have asked me a question before because I'm trying to think of all the different players. You know, the kid from um, Boston Brown has that kind of mentality. Um, Ooh, Tatum is Tatum Brown. But Brown is, he's just, he's not friendly. He's not, yeah. he's not, he yeah. doesn't try to be friendly. That's just like the old Detroit team. Isaiah might be friendly. He, he was a tough guy. Dumars was a tough guy. Um, 
Um, then you had um, Nate, not who else was on that team? Lambeer, Rodman, Mahorn. Oh, you know, Mahorn was a tough guy. Um, Rodman was, you know what? When I say a tough guy, now he wasn't a fighter. Now, Mahorn and all those guys were fight in a second. Um, Rodman was just an effort guy. He was an all-out effort. I mean, and that was his identity. Even though he was strange and everything, he gave you an effort every night. He did not take a day off. You, that's what you have to respect about him. I called him a knucklehead a couple of times, but I do respect <laughs> him. I played against him. And you have to respect his effort. Um, Mahorn was tough. Um, Lambeer was not tough. He acted tough, but he was not tough. I'm just being <laughs> honest with you. A good player, but not tough. You know. And, what about and, Sally and Vinnie Johnson and them off the bench? Oh, let me tell you something. The top, he, How many times did he get in a fight with Bird and all those guys? <laughs> I mean, it's and, and with Robert Parrish and them like that. But you're looking at, like, that, look at that. The Boston Celtic teams had four Hall of Famers on that team. Four Hall of Famers. You know, all the, the front line. And when I played against them, really, who are you going to check? It didn't make my, you know, I didn't want to really check Bird as much, but I used to check McHale and or Parrish because, to me, they weren't as physical. They were just good. You know, you don't want to run into a car Malone who is stronger than you, better than you. And I try to explain to people, even though I was a good defensive player, when you played a person like Carl Malone or Adrian Dantley or Bernard King, see, if you're an average player, they will look at that player to start a play. Now, if you overplay him, they'll go someplace else. But when you're checking a superstar, they look at him with option one, two, or three. And so you know you've got to work and be in shape to try to catch, keep him from catching the ball because you cannot stop good players when they catch the ball. You can't. That's when the game plan goes from just slowing them down, slowing them down a little bit as opposed to putting in a game plan to try and stop them. You know what? Even though you know their plays, it doesn't make any – the superstars, it makes not much difference. I'm going to give right. you a funny example. We were playing Boston the next night. And it was my teammates were Michael Thompson, which is Clay Thompson's dad, Calvin Natt, and some other really good players. Good players. Not superstars, but good players. Larry Bird was playing up in Seattle the night before, or two nights before, only scored two points. And I said to Calvin Natt, I said, Calvin, he's coming down here to Portland now. You better be ready because he is not going to go for two nights. Oh, I'll get him. I'll get him. I'll, I'm ready for him. Well, Bird scored almost almost 50 points against us because you can't keep superstars down. That is who they are. Like if you're a betting man, okay, and a superstar has a bad night, bet that he's going to have a tremendous night the next day. I don't care who he's playing or whatever. He is not going to – that's who he is. That's his identity. He He's going to fight his heart off to make sure that he has another great game to make sure, I mean, to make up for that bad game that he played. Was there ever a moment that stands out to you? Play, you know, you mentioned Larry Bird, him having that epic 50-point game. Playing alongside of Kareem, was there ever that moment that you watched him just take over and there was no stopping him? Is there something you think back of when you think playing alongside of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Well, real quickly, with Kareem, we, uh, when Jerry West became the coach, and Jerry West was my teammate, then became the coach, People don't realize 
his first year as a head coach, we had the best record in the NBA. And two of us got hurt in the playoffs. I got hurt, and Lucius Allen, the starting um, point guard, got hurt. So Portland beat us. But we had beaten Portland four out of four to that point. Um, Kareem, when we went on the road, I would say if Kareem was feeling well, I'd say we're going to win the game. If he, I just, how you feel, Cap? You feel good? If he said he felt good, I said, oh, we're confident. We're confident. <laughs> we would go on the road and win six out of seven games. Wow. Just can't stop these guys when they're in the swing of it. No, you can't. So, so I got to ask you a question about so, playing with L.A., getting eliminated in the playoffs by Portland, and then joining Portland a few years later. Is there a different feel to that back then? Because guys don't seem to care about switching cities these days. But did you feel like you? It was almost like a, like very like just a weird feeling switching cities. Well, you know, you don't you don't want to change. Every city I went to, the first one I was transferred, we traded, was because of that situation with Rudy Tomjanovich. But then yeah. I went to Boston, and they read Arbeck. I had known Red Arbeck since I was seventeen years old. His daughter went to college with me, and it, you got time? Do you have time for a story? Oh, of we course. Got we got time. Well, his daughter's name is Randy Arbeck, and she was friends with my girlfriend. Well, she needed a ride home. Now, we never, I never put two and two together that Randy Arbeck's dad was Red Arbeck. So we took her home, and this is Washington, D.C. So I said, what is he doing in Washington, D.C.? Well, he lived in Washington, D.C. during the offseason. So we take her home. Randy, and we walk in, and I see all these trophies. I said, oh, my God, who is your father? She says, oh, his name, Red Arbeck. I said, Red Arbeck? And I was a freshman <laughs> player back then. I said, well, let's get out of this house. Come on, let's go. I, that's, I, and as I'm going to try to walk out the door, here comes Red Arbeck walking in. He yeah. says, son, sit down a minute, son. He says, who is your favorite player? I said, Bill Russell. He says, well, I like you already. And so we became friends when I was 17 years old. And um, so he said, I'm going to keep an eye on you. He says, can you play? I said, I'm okay. And as a freshman, I was top, one of the top 10 freshmen in the country. And um, back then, freshmen could not play varsity ball. You had to play freshman ball. And I averaged about 18 points and 24 rebounds a game. And so I was the top 10. And so he says, well, I'm going to keep an eye on you. I said, okay. And so the next year, I was varsity average about 18 points and 20 rebounds a game. And he said, well, you can play a little bit. And then he kept an eye on me. And so we became friends. So when I got in that situation with the Lakers, um, Lakers just want to get rid of me because Kareem had already been in a fight with Benson. And then all of a sudden, I get in an altercation with Rudy, but it wasn't. See, the funny thing is, Rudy had nothing to do with that night. His teammate Kevin Cooner, the seven-foot center, had elbowed me in the face and punched me in the face. So I got in an altercation with him, and then I turn around and I see Rudy running at me full speed. Now, what am I going to think? You know, but I hate to say this on t radio, but they think all of us black guys are aggressive and thugs. They do. And so they said, well, you, why did you hit him? Well, I didn't know. Why is he running at me? Why did his teammate start it? But see, people don't know the history. A year earlier against the Buffalo Braves, 
um, I got in an altercation with John Shoemate, and three of his teammates jumped me. Um, Fred Foster, Emmett Bryant, and Don Adams, they all jumped me, and none of my teammates helped me. And so then, and that's, a, that's how it was back then, like 40 years ago, whatever. And so when I see people running at me, you know, I'm not a fighter. You know, I, I shoot, I, I used to always get beat up. But that's why I started lifting weights. I said, I tired of getting beat up as a kid. But, you know, they said, well, because they didn't show all the angles back then, they don't have all the angles of all what's going on in the game. And nobody ever saw Kevin Kuhn elbow me or punch me. But, um, hey, all hell broke out when that happened. But I, you know what? It's funny. I took a polygraph test, passed it, flying colors. You know, nobody cared. Um, I got suspended, what, two months, three months? I don't know what it was. 60 was, days? Huh? 60 days, right? I don't know what, it, listen, it seemed like a night, it seemed like a, a forever. I was getting there. <laughs> I didn't pay, and, um, and we weren't making that much money back then. But I did like going to Boston, because then I played with, you know, Dave Bing, Havlicek, um, Cowens, and JoJo White, all those guys. But that was toward the end of their career. But right. I you know what the most the game I remember the most in my career is Havlicek's final game. And is and he was like the Larry Bird. And it, we weren't playing that well that year. I mean, I only played, I think, 20 games with them or something because I got switched from the Lakers for that situation. But the final game, uh, it was unbelievable. Havlicek's final game, I mean, people, you couldn't get a ticket. I mean, the place was crazy. And Havlicek walks in with his tuxedo on, and we're playing the Buffalo Braves. And he's got to check a guy named Randy Smith. You know, I don't know if you guys remember of Randy course. Smith. Of course. And he was the MVP of the All-Star game that year in Atlanta. And I go up to Havlicek. I said, John, are you sure you want to check Randy on your final game? He says, hey, he says, I usually check him my final game. Hey, I'm not going to go out there and check somebody a cupcake. I'm going to go out there and, and play the best. He went out there in a slow start. But before that, listen to this. Red Arback walks into the locker room before the game. And we hadn't been playing that well. He says, if you don't win this game, I'm going to kill every single one of you. <laughs> no, he was Are you you're going to win this game for Havlicek or I'm going to kill every single one. And wow. We, and Havlicek had a slow start. The first half, I don't know what he had, but he wasn't playing that well. The second half, I think he scored about 20, 22 points. And that place, I have never been in an arena so loud, so crazy. We won the game. And it was it was a it was a moment I'll never forget. I mean, because he was a wonderful teammate, and um, it's incredible. I mean, he went out there and performed against Randy Smith, who was the fastest guy. And Havlicek must have been about thirty eight at that time. I don't know, but he was older. But you know, once again, all those guys, even though we didn't have a good season the last year, they were professionals. They it was no playing around. Dave Bing was his final game too. Um, JoJo was getting older. Dave Cowens had about two or three more years left, and that's about it. But, you know, good guys. It just was, you know, they were they had already hit their peak. and started like Golden State Warriors now. I don't think Golden State will ever 
be what they were. But they had a what a eight year eight year run, good run. Yeah, it's a dynasty. You know, it's a dynasty. Four championships, eight seasons. Yeah, you know something. They're they're you know, and I I love the players. I mean, Steph Curry changed the game. People don't understand that. I used to babysit Clay Thompson and his brothers, <laughs> Michael Thompson. Drop them off in my house, and my kids would watch them. But I really had to babysit them. You know, <laughs> Clay Thompson. All three of his boys made pro ball. Yeah, all three of them. Yep. You know, play for Dodgers. I still think, and other one with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and then Clay. You know, Clay. Clay was always quiet. They were good kids. Easy to babysit. Quiet, well behaved. Not like their dad, Michael Thompson. Oh, he'd drive you crazy. He'd drive you crazy. <laughs> so you know, I had a lot of memorable game, memorable games, and I enjoyed my teammates immensely. So I got to ask you, all around the note of Golden State Warriors, you retired at thirty-one for the first time, and waited what, five seasons to come back when you were then picked up by the Warriors in 1987? What was it that made you want to return? Now, you'll enjoy this. I was coaching at Stanford University, assistant coach at Stanford University. And the Warriors would come play and practice at Stanford during the offseason. And I was good friends with Chris Mullen and some of the other guys. So here's the thing. When I retired... I retired because I couldn't play every day anymore. My body would break down. Now, if I played a game and took off three or four days, I was good again. So when they would come and play, I would play on one day and then maybe four days later play again, and I would play really well. So Don Nelson's up there and stands watching. And he says, hey, Kermit, you know, you can still play. I said, no, I can't. I said, my body... It can play for one day. It take me three days to be able to, to feel good again. He said, no, you should try out. He says, now listen to this story. He offered me $10,000 just to show up at the training camp. I mean, training camp. Wow. I said, no. I said, my body, you know, it can't take it. It really couldn't. I know I knew my body from all that lifting weights, running the stairs, weight vests. It, it, it said, Kermit, you've done enough. He got up to 20000 I said, no, no. When he got to 40000 I said, oh, what time do you want me there? <laughs> it's 1984, maybe. And the thing is, what happened, I started. because. But then what happened in the games, in, so in practice, they didn't make me practice that much. So I, when we had preseason games, I played well. And um, I, I won the starting spot. But I knew start with playing the starting spot game, a game every other day, my body broke down and I just couldn't do it. And so I just told him I couldn't, I can't make it. I mean, I was living on aspirin and ice packs and I just said, thank you very much. And I uh, walked away from it. But um, I, I kept telling people, if you only played once every four or five days, I could have played another four or five years. But, you know, with lift all those weights, running the stairs, jumping all those ropes and all that stuff, I, I broke my body down. And, and it was my fault, but I would have never been successful if I, you know, hadn't done all that because I was not a great scorer. Now, in college, I was a good scorer, but they gave me the ball every play. <laughs> Bro, I played with good guys and I was a fifth option. So, you know, it's a different world. 
So I wanted to rewind for a minute, uh, if we could, Kermit, and talk about your all-star season in 1980 with the Portland Trailblazers. Um, what was different about that season than every other season that got you honored with an all-star selection? That's very funny because I'm not an all-star. I, I, I tell people it's nice to have made it, but I, I didn't have the all-star mentality because I played with too many superstars. But when I went to Portland – Traded to Portland from the compensation for Walton. Maurice Lucas was hurt and Michael Thompson was hurt. So you had two guys that were really good that played my position or or whatever. They weren't playing. So all of a sudden I'm pushed into the starting lineup. But I had started for the Lakers. No, I started for the Lakers in Boston and the Clippers. I got from on the bench for the first couple of years. And um I played really well. So during the, just around the All-Star break, I was averaging about, I think, 15, 16 points, about 12 or 13 rebounds, second or third leading rebound in the league. But because they couldn't, I mean, I played 30-some minutes a game, 38 minutes a game or something, because everybody else was hurt. And, um, I, you know, but, and, and the good thing about it, the All-Star game was in Washington, D.C., where I grew up. So that was nice. But I'm nice. not an all-star. I mean, I knew that. I knew that. But I was just thankful that um, I got an opportunity. Um, I think now, you're being a little humble. Player. Averaging a double-double and over a steal and a block a game, I think you're being a little too humble. <laughs> oh, oh, no, listen, listen. I, I know what I was. And I tell people, now, rebounder, yes, I was a really good rebound. Defense, really good defense. Um, I was a fifth option. And as soon as Maurice Lucas and Michael Thompson came back, um, um, oh, I, I, you know what, I became like a 10-10 guy again, 10 points and 10 rebounds. But this is, and I've got to go after this story, but this is a funny story. Now, Maurice Lucas and I were blood enemies when we were on the uh, Lakers and he was on Portland during those, because he So can you still hear me? Yeah. Gotcha. Why you're um, somebody called me from a show, but so when he was hurt and he was an all-star and the toughest power forward in the league at that point, but I'm, I mean, I was starting and I was playing well. So Jack Ramsey says, I'm going to keep you starting Kermit. I said, Lord have mercy because Maurice was a tough guy. So when Maurice got healthy, he was beating, well, not physically fighting, but beating up everybody in practice because he was upset that he's not starting. And so before Chicago Bulls game, I go to Jack Ramsey. I said, Jack, you got to start Maurice Lucas. He says, why? You're playing so well. I said, because you won't have a team left if you don't let Maurice get back in that starting lineup. I don't care. I don't mind coming off the bench because Maurice was beating all of us up in, in practice, really. Elbow in. And, oh, I said, he says, well, why? I said, listen, I don't mind coming off the bench. I don't. And so more recently got into the starting lineup. But then Tom Owens, who's center, got injured. And then basically, then um, I, Maurice went to the center and I went to the power forward again. So it all worked out. But he was a tough guy. Maurice would start off a game with the elbow to your face. Not to mine. I told him, I said, if you help me, one of us is going to be in the hospital. Oh, yeah. You had to. Maurice was a tough guy. I mean, not he had a lot of tough guys like that back then. And it was very aggressive. I mean, elbow to your face. 
I love it. Bring it back. Let's get the NBA aggressive again. I know Nick probably has one more question, but I've got one too, just really quick before. I know you're very, very uh, busy, man, Kermit. But you played alongside one of my favorite players and a dear friend in real life, Chris Mullen, Hall of Famer. Where do you rank him amongst all-time shooters, having seen him on the court? Well, you know what? That's hard. I would rank him as one of the all-time good guys in the league. I mean, he was. we were roommates. You don't know that, right? No, that I did not know. When I went to the um, Golden State Warriors, I was getting a place in Foster City, but it wasn't ready yet. And Chris, I didn't even know. He says, Kermit, why don't you stay with me while you while your place is getting well? I said, okay, I'll stay with you. And um, very enjoyable guy, really good guy. He would get checks from um, maybe Adidas or Nike or whatever, 20 or 30,000 and put them on a put them on the refrigerator with a magnet. I said, Chris, go cash those checks or deposit them. I will. He wouldn't even bother them. It didn't mean anything to him. Wow. And he, he would hide them so I wouldn't keep bugging him to put it put him in the bank. Well, Chris was a worker. I mean, we would go to practice, but then he would come home, go to a gym and shoot for an hour or so, come home, get on that treadmill or that bike for an hour, hour and a half. He was a you know what? The work ethic, that's that's what you need to say about him. The work ethic, good guy. You know, he took care of Manute Bowl when Manute Bowl was sick. Yeah. Did actually, you know that? And his son. I actually know his son, Chris Bowl, because he was living at the Mullen house in the yes. Hamptons. Yeah. That's, that's shouts, what that's a wonderful Chris man. Did. Absolutely got to agree with that. Chris Mullen is the man. One of the good guys. And, I mean, and as a teammate, what a wonderful guy. I mean, so you hear so many negative things, but there's so many good things. Like Jerry West um, took care of Happy Harrison. I don't know, maybe that's before your guy's time, but Happy Harrison got really sick and Jerry West was taking care of him. Wow. So people don't realize, we don't hear the good stories. We're going to hear all the bad stories. That's what people want to hear. But you've got a lot of good guys out there. you got some knuckleheads too, yes, I admit, but you've got some good guys out there. No, I definitely love bringing the attention to uh, these good stories. So they'll definitely be printed out and hopefully a lot of people see them and see another side of these guys that they might may not know about, you know? Well, oh, it's so many good stories. I mean, well, that's when you get old. I, I People say you have so many good stories. Well, you're 72 years old. You got better, stories. <laughs> you better have some damn stories. Yeah. All the legendary well, work you've done on and off the court. So, uh, Nick, is there anything else you'd like to ask before we wrap this up? We know Mr. Washington's a very busy man. No, no, no. No more uh, questions for you, Mr. Washington. But I just want to thank you um, for answering my message on Facebook and connecting and giving me a call and getting this all set up. It was an honor to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I hope to speak again to you soon. I like people to know about these other players, you know, the other the good side of a lot of these guys and um, how how they were. Because they see people nowadays and their ballplayers – you know, they're very private now. They have to be because everybody's going after them for something. But, right. you know, I, I enjoyed my pro. I wish I hadn't gotten hurt and I could have lasted more than 10 years. But like LeBron, I can't believe him. I mean, I've never seen nothing like that in my life. It's and unbelievable. Still play that well. It's he's literally beating down Father Time the way he's beating up on the 22-year-olds out there in yeah, the NBA right now. Truly spectacular. Uh, but people get upset with me. Michael Jordan, to me, is still the greatest that ever played. No, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. 
Yeah. I'm still the Wilt guy. But hey, that's just me. And yeah. it's been uh it's been an honor. I'm just kidding, by the way. I'm a LeBron guy. I'm just breaking uh breaking Nick's balls. You know, I always do that. <laughs> he's not he's not a killer like Michael. He's definitely not a killer like Michael. But Mike- I mean, let me ask you this uh, one closing thought. Do you think that if LeBron wins another championship and plays at this rate and at this caliber for who knows another two, three years, does that help at least close the gap a little bit in your opinion between him and Jordan? No. No. Fair enough. No, no, you know what? They're different. They're yeah. different. I mean, to me, but see, it's just my opinion. Michael, he was such a leader. I mean, and he was such a leader. I mean, he made everybody around him so much better. Now, I don't know if 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 LeBron does that. Now, when everybody left those Bulls teams and went to other teams, they disappeared. You never heard of them anymore. You know, you know, Luke Longley didn't do anything. Just name them. They went to other teams and they were ineffective in a sense. When they were with Michael, they were championship quality team. But then when they left, you know. I would say one of the exceptions to that is Horace Grant. He was pretty good when he went to Orlando. He was okay. Pippen was good all the time. But Horace Grant Grant was good. Good. But nobody was like Michael. I can't think of anybody that was like Michael as a leader. What a great point you made, though. You mentioned it earlier about just the impact that leadership and going as far to punch somebody in the face to bring out the best in them, to make them play their hardest. Punch in the face. Steve Kerr. Rumor has it. Didn't punch him. He slapped him. He slapped. Oh, but, but you know that fights in practice happens all the time. You won't hear about nowadays. Yeah. You might hear about that, but fights in practice was an everyday occurrence. You know, and so because Michael's a big man, everybody talks about it. He, he got out. They but, did um, a segment of that on Michael the last really, dance. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely some uh, great insight, great stories, Kermit. Thank you so much, and hopefully we can have you one day back here again. But we appreciate the time. Appreciate the knowledge and the stories. Everybody go look for Kermit Washington. I'm sure you're on all social media platforms, right? Do you like to plug any social media platforms? I got thousands of stories, but you take care. All right. So really quickly, Nick, that was a great interview. Just to wrap this up, we need to go to Fadeaway World immediately. Listeners, people that are with us on this live stream on YouTube, everywhere else, go to the Ryan Show YouTube page. And most important, Fadeaway World for a great article written by Nick Mack. Mac, I think it's time we play a little bit of music by Honky Wonky and Sound to the Sunset. What do you think, brother? Absolutely. Thanks for having me again. This was a very special addition to me, and uh, we'll see you again soon. We'll be back soon, folks. Got me singing, I love you too. No more tears, only truths, girl. How about we go? Shelf. We not drinking Casamigos Are you impaired? You're not there, but I'm a little Casa Azul, got me singing I love you too Bossy captain, Casa girl, come drive my boat Ring that bell, bet they follow wherever we go Diesel got that Captain Morgan, pour him three more Then stand up please, let me see you put your hands on your knees no more dares, only truths, girl, how about we go? Go up shelf, we not drinking Casamigos Are you impaired? You're not there, I'm a little Casa Azul, got me singing I love you too Where you work on the weekend? 
Shots of class A, me and Lil Bossy in Barcelona The news just dropped, I'm a Barcelona What can I say? Tell Coach Cliff to suit me up and I'll play I'm winning, we at Tate Mayfair, you can't get in The little back room where not many fit in The prettiest girls all be grinning They say I'm their favorite, they want me to lay with It's blatant, now we on our MIA We just hit Playa, they playing a dirt song I'm on fire, a little red bone She look like Maya and want me to try her Oh Lord, no more dares Only truths, girl, how about we go? Shelf. We not drinking Casamigos Are you impaired? You're not there, but I'm a little Casa Azul Got me singing I love you too Truck, but I've been driven. Pull up and turn your friends given to a Ben's given. Yeah, what is given's what has been given. We gotta move in where we've been living. That Brooklyn boy ain't gonna play with you. That's word to Ben Simmons. Floating through, I got the Ben swimming. Shout out Capo, but I've been gymming. The fit lit, plus how I dip off the set, it's like the Ben's gymming. Hey, could be facing a hundred like we Benjamin. Ramen noodling and Slim Jimmin. But nope. Still in the game in my 10th inning So up, I'm out the game on the bench grinning Season after season, Ben's winning Riding with no L, Ben's winning Slow and bro, back to back, got the Ben's twinning Main and East, back to back, got the Ben's twinning The bros moved, Danny Swift, they got twin siblings The truck was a family gift, came with Ben's ribbons Can't bite my style, but they been nibbling can't write this good, but they been scribbling I was in the hood like the Benz engine <laughs> On top of my hood like the Benz emblem The streets ugly, but they been gremlin The seats hug me like right after a dap that a friend give him No cap in my rap, big Benz rhythm Cause I either live these lyrics or my friends live them Like is that my in the Benz with him In the passenger on her close friends with him AMG 63, now Molly Benz in them Sha got it blacked out, he call his Benz Venom Soup said they Benz rented, so they Benz tenants Tell them boys stay inside, it's a Benz Demi Swinging a 4x4, dog, this Benz bugging Had to name the truck, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan All good things must come to an end Yes, even this radio presentation But I want to thank everybody that hung out with us for the whole two hours We'll be back at the same time and the same place next week. Hope everybody has a very Merry Christmas and an amazing Kwanzaa and just a beautiful holiday season all around. I know that this show wasn't really too holiday-oriented or Christmas-themed, but if you go to our YouTube page, you can see more content that didn't make it to radio. Not because it wasn't good, but because it was more visual-based. So go to The Ryan Show F5 on YouTube. Give us a follow. Check out some of the shorts. And remember, once we're up to 50,000 subscribers... 
you're stuck looking at full content. And we're sitting on a whole bunch of gems. Thanks as always, folks. I love you guys. Thanks so much for supporting. We'll be back next week. Over and out, folks. Merry Christmas. Happy Kwanzaa. Peace. Peace.